Welcome to Conscious Collaboration, the premier show for authentic discussions with growth-oriented leaders. Hello and welcome to Conscious Collaboration Podcast. I'm your host today, Josh Bayer. I am co-hosting this podcast with my colleague Yael Sivi, who just actually had this last episode, if you haven't listened in to it yet, um, with Natalie Rass from Y7 Yoga Studio, where they talked about the work they did with the leadership team over two plus years. And it's quite interesting. So feel free to check out our website or to subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. But today I am super pleased to have as my guest, Dr. Paul Zak. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Josh. So let me say a few things about Paul first, um, biographically, but also why I really wanted to bring you on to this podcast. And then we'll, we'll, we'll go really through a number of questions I wanted to ask and also introduce your body of work. Does that sound right? Sure. All right. So Paul is the founding director of the Center for Neuroeconomic Studies and professor of economics, psychology and management at Claremont Graduate University. And he also has a background in postdoctoral training in neuroimaging and neuroscience. And it's really at the intersection of these very interdisciplinary disciplines that uh, your body of work has emerged. And I, I will talk more about that in the moment. But why did I want to have you here? I think the um, there you wrote a number of books. Um, one book is has been I think twenty twelve perhaps the the moral molecule, the source of love and prosperity, and that research led into the trust factor, the science of creating high performance companies, and that just seems to set us up for a perfect conversation and the work that you highlight in in that book and in your in your talks uh, since then um, is really something I wanted to bring to our listeners. So Paul, before we dive into perhaps more substantial conversations, I would love to know, um, you know, like, how did you get to be who you are? Like, I, I always fantasies, fantasized about having a time machine and going back to the Renaissance. So you really bring a lot of different influences to your work. Like, how, how did you get to do what you're doing? Like, how did that happen? Yeah, so you're saying I'm a weirdo, which I agree with. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I have a really kind of unusual background in which, um, first of all, I, I'm, I've been at Claremont Graduate University for 24 years. I'm very, very grateful that they have given me uh, a lot of space to explore uh, areas that are non-traditional and, as you said, interdisciplinary. Uh, so first of all, I, I have a very privileged position in which I essentially get to remake myself every 10 years. Um, so I, I'm fascinated by humans. I think I'm a bit of a Martian, so I don't really understand people. And so I spent most of my life trying to understand human social behaviors. And uh, the sort of secret to my success is I'm a tool guy. Uh, so I'm, mm -hmm. I'm rather good at developing tools uh, that people can use or I can use, others can use to understand the source of human behaviors, particularly social behaviors. And... Um, uh, you know, having an academic position gives me a, I have a lab, gives me an opportunity to, to develop and test those tools. And then we spun out now four different companies that have begun to commercialize those tools so that they can be generally available uh, and, and able to create value. Uh, so I'm, I'm really interested in human social behaviors. Uh, again, I may have some uh, internal pathology that leads me to study things like empathy and teamwork and uh, uh, pro-social behaviors. 
Um, but mm -hmm. uh, by combining uh, neuroscience and economics, and by economics, I really mean decision making, it gives us uh, insight into what human beings are doing. So I think the point of decision is a great place to look at um, why you do A and I do B. And all of a sudden, we're having a much more interesting conversation uh, than I think is done in standard economics, which is looking at you know, really focusing on averages and maybe standard neuroscience as well. So I think, you know, neuroscience 1.0 is really, you know, on average, how do brains process this kind of decision and neuroscience 2.0 is really, where's that variation come from? How do we understand that variation? What's the source mm -hmm. of that variation? And how can we harness that knowledge to improve um, outcomes for individuals, for organizations, for societies? Yeah. Yeah. What I what I always appreciated about the field of neuroscience was that in a way it does two things. It it humbles us to realize that, you know, we are biological organisms and there are some things that we can't easily will, but at the same time we're also not entirely at the will of all these forces. And so how do we walk that line? Gosh, I knew we were gonna have a great conversation. That's exactly <laughs> what I say. So I've become so uh, tolerant of the variation in uh, human behaviors, the wide variation. So when we run experiments, Josh, and we'll run, say, 30 people through the same task, measure brain activity, and we'll see five, six, seven different patterns of brain activity and subsequently different sets of behaviors. And that's not pathology. That's people's brains optimizing mm -hmm. second by second. So I was in uh, Brazil last week working with a, a really interesting uh, global company um, uh, based in Porto Alegre, Brazil. And the first thing I said was, you know, let's spend an hour talking about why people are inconsistent. Is that because they're weird or stupid or irrational? It's because mm -hmm. your brain is trying to re-optimize every millisecond so that you can survive and reproduce ultimately. But, you know, your, your brain is re-optimizing to changes in your internal state that you may not even know about, in your external state that you may or may not be aware of. And so what it looks like is that people are weird or people are inconsistent, and that's to be expected. What's what's not expected is consistency. So when you're leading a team at work, you've got to expect inconsistency. You've got to expect that people will do things differently day to day or even hour by hour, because not because they're, again, wackos, it's because their brain is doing these subtle reoptimizations, and that's mm -hmm. okay. That's exactly what your brain should do is adapt to that new environment. And it's incumbent on leaders then to focus that brain activity and team activity, you know, multiple brains, so that those objectives are being met. And that's a difficult task. And I think that's where in the work you do, coaching, you know, that's where that comes in. It's not something that we can understand intuitively. And I do think the neuroscience adds real valuable, uh, actionable insights that can improve teamwork. Yeah, you're, you're really setting me up nicely. So part of when Yael and I played with the idea of this particular podcast and what we consider, you know, like what is conscious collaboration? What does that even mean as a term? We came to some kind of understanding and we love to run that by our guests usually and compare notes. And, and, and you're really setting me up very beautifully for that because part of what you're describing when you use the word consistency is you know, uh, we're, we're prone also to inconsistency and consistency is pointing to practice, to intentionality. So here we go and tell me what you think. So collaboration, you know, obviously most places uh, would love collaboration and more of it, um, but there is really no snake oil for it. We don't look at collaboration as a thing 
that you can get and then forget, but it's really an ongoing, committed, intentional practice where you cultivate the right. Oops, you just dropped. Up oh, there you oh, are. Okay. okay, okay, you just um, you dropped off. Um, okay, pause. We really look at collaboration as a committed, ongoing, intentional practice where you know there is no one set stage that you achieve and then you're done, but you really have to keep at it so that there is consistency of behaviors and attitudes. Uh, what, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, it, it does take uh, energy, conscious uh, effort. Uh, we certainly know from neuroscience that uh, it is metabolically costly to sustain that effort. So we have been developing, as you know, a number of technologies to measure that. And I think the first way that you get better is through measurement. Uh, if you can actually measure how effectively teams are working, uh, you know, for us, it's at a neurologic level, but it's certainly going to be at a behavioral level. So again, some things that, that you know, and maybe listeners know, but things that I think have really proven themselves out. And one is giving very clear uh, objectives and milestones. Um, the second is, is from a leadership perspective, uh, I really think that the, the kind of servant leader model is the effective, most effective model for getting uh, teamwork done. I love the standing five-minute daily huddle. It's just, gosh, mm -hmm. my favorite thing to do. Um, let's just make sure we're on track. And, and I use three questions on that, which is, what'd you do yesterday? What's your plan today? And what do you need help with? So we're just yeah. staying on track. So I'm making sure that this inconsistent brain that wants to kind of idle, if possible, and, and you know, subtly re-optimize, I'm going to keep you on track by just doing those check-ins. And obviously, check-ins during the day. Um, but, um, yeah, I think it's, you know, that's a variant of, uh, you know, start, stop, continue, which I also like a lot too. So, um, you know, if we're, if we're getting behind, you know, let's, let's talk about what you need. Let's talk about why we're doing that. So, mm -hmm. um, in, mm -hmm. in the groups that I run, um, everyone knows that it's not, you know, if you're a group leader, it's not a big deal. If we swap you out, if we're missing milestones, shake it up. And, and that happens, you know, quite often where for whatever reason, we're, you know, we're, we're just getting behind schedule and, um, and there's nothing, I, I don't see that as anything pejorative. I see as the, the organism, the, 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 you know, the, the organization, uh, has got to survive. Uh, and, and if, you know, you feel like, you know, that's, uh, your feelings a little hurt. Well, that's, that's my problem. I haven't communicated how effectively that is. So, uh, so we swap out team leaders all the time. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and, 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 also ask junior people to lead. You know, we have nice small projects. We say, hey, you know, it's time for you to take charge of a team. So you're going to run this three-week project. It's got very clear um, objectives. You've been on teams a bunch of times. Now's your chance to, to be a team leader, which unfortunately means you got to talk to me every day. So that's, you know, that's a downside. Um, but, you know, got to build that experience up. So yeah, I think it's really developing a shared leadership model where everybody is, you know, part of that, that leadership team. So how do you, so first of all, for those who are not familiar with your body of work, there's definitely, um, I mean, you know, we really write about a variety of subjects, but if we stick to trust and, and collaboration, um, there is one article I definitely want to point people towards, which is the neuroscience of trust, uh, which you speak about, but also have a published article on HBR about, and what you write and what you say right now really reminds me of one of the factors that you mentioned there, the importance of giving discretion, of, 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 of um, allowing people to figure out how they want to do their work, of empowering, of supporting flexibility, because that is something that instills trust. And then as a result of that trust, good things happen. 
Do I get that right? Exactly. So let, let's go through that, the science of that, just a little, little bit of detail, because I think it's valuable. Um, the first is that when we look at the anatomy of the human brain, uh, we are built to collaborate. We uh, have a very uh, distinct um, anatomy that makes it not only easy to collaborate with others, uh, but actually enjoyable uh, in, in many circumstances. And that's driven by uh, the location and density of, uh, of, of receptors for oxytocin in particular and a larger brain network that oxytocin activates. And so, yeah, for the people who don't know my work, uh, our lab was the first to uh, develop a tool, a way to measure the human brain's acute production of oxytocin uh, about 20 years ago. And we used that to show that oxytocin is a key signaling molecule in the brain that tells us others in our environment are uh, trustworthy or safe or familiar. Um, and we spent a lot of time working on the factors that promote or inhibit oxytocin release in healthy adults and psychiatric patients. Uh, done lots of work in that area. Uh, but what, what oxytocin does in the brain is a couple of things. It, it uh, reduces our physiologic uh, arousal or anxiety from being around other people, right? So that's natural. I don't, uh, you know, even your spouse, even your, your best friend, you should, you know, internally be monitoring him or her just a little bit. If my wife comes home smelling like a men's cologne and her hair all mussed up, I should investigate that, even though I've been married forever, right? That would be, it would be silly not to do that, right? So we're always mm -hmm. monitoring each other. So the first thing oxytocin does is say, hey, this person seems safe, so I'm going to reduce my arousal level, so I'm calmer. The second thing it does is it increases our ability to understand the emotions of others, so it increases empathy. Uh, imagine how important that is for teamwork. The third thing it does is it motivates us to work on the other person's behalf or work on a team goal as opposed to an individual goal. So it kind of melts that self-other divide. So those three things make uh, effective teamwork, that is, reducing stress, uh, increasing my ability to understand what the other person is doing and why, and thirdly, mm -hmm. uh, motivates me to, to uh, work for a group goal. So how do we know this? You know, extensive studies, uh, you know, in businesses, uh, as you know, have run experiments in the rainforest of Papua New Guinea, looking at organizational neuroscience among indigenous people. I mean, crazy experiments, you know, with no running water, no electricity, and same neurologic mechanisms work there. And humans have therefore adapted their behaviors to tap into those neurologic mechanisms. So once yeah. we understand that mechanism, because I'm a tool guy, once I understand that mechanism, then I can begin to deploy that in, in organizations. So, um, so as you know, we've so developed a, a number of tools to measure and manage uh, uh, cultures and organizations for high trust and, and therefore high performance. Mm. And Paul, let's, let's get to that in a moment. I want to unpack two things that you shared, because I might imagine that some people would love to believe you, but perhaps bristle a little bit. Let's start with the first sentence you said, uh, which is we're built to collaborate because, I mean, I personally agree. And I think the, the line of reasoning you go with, right, really looking at the power of oxytocin and what it does to our brains and our behaviors is, is one avenue to go there. But, you know, I would argue there are a lot of people who would say, well, we are built to compete. You know, if you don't fight for what you want, no one is going to give it to you. So how would you respond to those who say it's like, yeah, you know, like we try to get along or we try to get ahead. That's really what our human nature is. The collaboration thing is kind of nice, but it's just really not how the true world works. Right. So is, is yeah, nature red in tooth and claw or are we, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, bees and ants? Mm -hmm. We're somewhere in the middle. So um, what we see in effective organizations is in-group cooperation and out-group competition. 
Uh, so the, the opposite of yeah. that, which is sort of the Enron approach and, and early GE under uh, Jack Welch, which is I want employees to compete with each other. Well, now you, we undermine each other, right? So we don't have effective cooperation. So, you know, even GE has gotten rid of rank and yank. Uh, it's just a bad idea. Google stopped doing that years ago. Um, mm -hmm. So um, so the statement I'm saying is if we look at our closest genetic relative chimpanzees with whom we share 98% of our genes, we put 20 chimpanzees in a room and very rapidly fur and blood would be flying. But you put 20 humans in a room and almost always people are calm, they get along, you, you're teaching them something or you're, you're guiding them to do something. And they'll do that quite readily. Uh, and that's because the, the uh, number of receptors for oxytocin in the frontal cortex that makes it feel good to be around others is extraordinarily higher than in chimpanzees or in any, any other mammals. And so we're super sensitive to social information. And that, that's also a downside. That's why it works sometimes. You know, these little slights, uh, you know, hey, Sue didn't say hi to me this morning. Oh, she must hate me. You know, we sort of perseverate on, on these small social faux pas because we're so sensitive to social information. And so, um, you know, people who have, um, say, uh, uh, less uh, developed social skills, and I think I would include myself in that group, you know, we have to work a little harder to, to really acquire those social signals where um, others, uh, again, lots of variation in the brain, others are, are much better at reading social yeah. cues. And again, I think this is where coaching, this is where self-insight, uh, meditation, I know all that is important so that we can get better essentially being human. I mean, we're not even talking about being great at work here. I mean, I think all the work you do, lots of the work I do uh, is um, just about being a better human being, which generally leads you to be a better employee. So just to mm -hmm. finish that off, I, I worked with a, uh, recently with a, a very large online retailer that you would know, and I had, had a division that was, you know, had high turnover, low morale, low productivity. So we designed intervention to raise trust in, in this, uh, in this uh, division. In, in a, after collecting data in, in a very focused way, so one aspect of, of trust was uh, was quite low, uh, an aspect I call natural, which is your ability to just be your, be your authentic self at work. Just be relaxed, be yourself, be vulnerable. Uh, and that was really quite, quite missing uh, according to the data we collected. And so as I kicked off this intervention, uh, you know, with the leadership, and, and you know, whenever you collect data and show it to employees, they're never surprised. They know, they're working there, they're aware. So Okay, okay, here's here's what's going on in your in your division. Here's the, the thing we're gonna do for the next three months to try to improve your work life. And I always say, like, I can't force you to watch these videos we're gonna send you. I can't force you to to you know fill out the surveys we send you. But if you start practicing practicing these behaviors at work, these will carry over to your home life, and that can actually can improve your home life as well. So these all run together. There's no hard separation yeah. between yeah. you at work and you at home. And that's really where we're coming on very strongly that for most people who are living the luxury of having some like pursuing careers that are also somewhat self-actualizing that their personal selves and their professional selves cannot really be separated. And any kind of growth is just a whole person kind of growth, which is really also where your model is going. So I, I want to hear more about those eight factors, but I really also want to make sure um, the line of reasoning is kind of clear where... So you study oxytocin, you understand, and at this point, hopefully our readers or listeners understand that oxytocin is a hormone um, or a neurotransmitter that actually um, supports a sense of connection and uh, togetherness and, and aligned um, action in humans. And there are certain behaviors and attitudes 
that we can be intentional about that will either encourage or prohibit the release of oxytocin and as such then encourage or hinder the climate for collaboration? Is that perhaps oversimplified, but roughly the idea? No, I think that's exactly right. Right. So mm -hmm. if we understand, again, I, I, I think of myself as a sort of social engineer. If we understand the mechanism of the brain, then we can reverse engineer the process and create opportunities mm -hmm. for that oxytocin release and the effective teamwork. So concrete example, uh, in the book Trust Factor that I wrote, um, uh, Zappos, uh, the online uh, shoe and clothing seller, has been a long time uh, a partner of mine. And we've, we've launched a number of studies there, including, by the way, taking uh, blood from their employees and measuring brain activity while they worked. I mean, Zappos has been, been a really great partner. And they signed off to put a bunch of their data in my book, which is, you know, very few companies do that. So big, big fan of Tony Shays and Zappos. Um, so at Zappos, when they built their new headquarters in downtown Las Vegas, and by the way, for people interested in culture, if you're next time you're in Vegas, go on the tour at Zappos. It's actually really wonderful. Mm -hmm. Uh, they talk a lot about how they intentionally have built culture there and, and sustain culture, actually. Um, so I recommend it. Uh, anyway, what they did in the, this new uh, building is they, they built in little nooks um, at the end of hallways that had couches and snacks and they have wireless throughout. And so they, they want people to bump into each other and there are places you can sit and talk and work. Um, and so, you know, they're again, they're designing a way for you to interact with somebody. So when they first moved in that building, uh, when you logged on to your computer in the morning, they would have a picture of a person at their company. There's about 1,500 people uh, working for Zappos in Las Vegas. And they would say, okay, this is Josh. Go find him and introduce yourself and find out what his birthday is. And uh, when you meet him, enter, enter his birthday here and you'll get some points towards getting swag at the end of the year kind of stuff. So um, anyway, so they just kind of force you to meet other people. Uh, another example of that is, is uh, the, the story of uh, Steve Jobs when they were building the Pixar headquarters and the design by, by design, there was a single entrance and exit. I mean, single set of doors. You wanted people to bump into each other and that possibly apocryphal story was he wanted also only one set of bathrooms. <laughs> so people running into each other in bathroom that was squashed. Uh, yeah. You can't put everybody into a single bathroom, uh, but uh -huh. you know, that's the idea. So we could go through lots of ways that you could stimulate this, but uh, Zappos does a good job and having events on campus, off campus, they have monthly block parties, so you can hang out together. So I think there's no work-life balance, there's work-life work, work -life integration. So integrating work and life, then, you know, if you have an optional block party once a month in downtown Vegas with your work colleagues, you can go or not go, but it's kind of fun. If you like these people, it's fun to hang out, get to know them, uh, you know, on a personal level. That makes work more effective. So there's a nice feedback loop that you can set up. And Zephos has done a great job of doing this really intentionally. Uh, Paul, the one thing, so what I love about Trust Factor and, and the work that's come out is, you know, like obviously trust, so many people talk about trust, but you can't will trust the way you can't will spontaneity. But you're really pointing to concrete examples and thanks for, for sharing some some tangible ideas. There, there are two of your transfers I would love to get to. Uh, one has to do with really um, setting achievable goals where there is a challenge and the challenge induces the stress, but it can be jointly tackled. And as a result of it, there's connection. But how does a group know what's achievable? Like how have you seen groups negotiate 
you know, like, is this too ambitious? Is this ambitious enough? Is this a big, hairy, audacious goal or not? Or like, how, how does that, how do you find out whether you're ambitious enough? That's a great question. Right. So, um, so again, I always come up from a neuroscience perspective. Mm -hmm. So the brain works, as you know, very much like a muscle. Um, it, it likes to be stressed and then it needs to recover. Um, and so this is the reason why we want to set challenge goals at work. We want to stress you. We want to have you really be focused so that you're optimizing uh, uh, brain activity. You avoid distractions when you're, so we call it challenge stress. So it's time limited or, or task limited stress. So I don't want chronic stress where you just can't get rid of the stress. You can't sleep gotcha. at night. Uh, and we've shown at um, also in the book, uh, Herman Miller, the furniture maker, that in high trust uh, groups of Herman Miller, they shed the stress of work much more rapidly when work is over. So again, oxytocin is doing this background work so that I'm focused when I'm at work, I'm a good team member, but when mm -hmm. work is over, boom, I just let it go. So that's kind of what you want, rest, uh, sorry, stress and then uh, recover, stress, recover. Um, so, so as a leader, how do I know that? How do I know how much stress to give you? And I think it's, it's an iterative thing. I wanna, again, um, give you some challenges, work with you to meet those challenges, and then debrief when that challenge is over and talk about, you know, how difficult that was. It was not difficult enough. Getting that really rich feedback so that um, I can understand as a leader when I want to give you a challenge. And sometimes not having a challenge is fine. So after a, a, a you know, very strong challenge, say a three-month project for a client, you know, let that employee go home for a week on time or early, get caught up on email, and then start another challenge a week later. So what we don't want to do is have you finished a really, you know, hairy challenge on Friday and then Monday give you a newly, really hard one. So again, think of, of rest and recovery as important for working out, just like it is for your brain. So it's challenge, rest, challenge, rest. Mm -hmm. There's, there's, in a way, it's like nature in a way. And back to pointing to the fact that we are human biological systems. We do need contraction release, contraction release in a way. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, and, uh. and if we don't do that, also, we get really bored. So I, I, like you, I've been in many organizations, we walk through and people are just not very busy. And that also worries me because then you also get burnt out. You're like, oh, I'm not really being challenged. Am I excited about being here? Not really. You know, I, they, don't, they don't push me hard. So, you know, there's a this kind of this weird trade off. I mean, obviously, you need slack. You know, every organization is going to have some slack in it because you never know when things are going to get crazy, insane. Uh, but, um, you know, I think when you see that slack, that's a great time to do additional training, to begin trying new things, to, uh, you know, see if you can um, uh, design challenges. And by the way, I think this is not top down. This is a conversation, um, it, at least in, in my group. I think it works much better if we sit down and talk about, hey, we're a little bit, you're a little bit underutilized now. Let's, let's think about like where you want your next job to be. So I, I really like his provocative mm -hmm. questions. What would you like your next job to be? Is it with us or with somebody else? So mm -hmm. I had a, a group uh, from my lab, a woman who, uh, uh, her husband worked in Silicon Valley. She was down in LA where my university is. And she really wanted to work for, for uh, one of the big uh, social media companies like Facebook. And so well, I know some people at Facebook. I'll make some emails. I sent some emails. And uh, she ended up getting a job at Facebook. Well, that's great for me because now I got a person at Facebook. I can call her up. I can, you know, if I want to do additional work there, I have projects with Facebook, which I've done. Uh, right. So, you know, I think high performers are very rare. So we want to make sure that we keep these high performers fully engaged at work, understanding, as you said, they're biological creatures. You've got to rest. Even the investment banks, I talk about this in the book, you know, the Goldman Sachs, et cetera, 
you know, even they are not, uh, you know, doing the hundred hour work weeks anymore. Mm. They just realize it's not sustainable, right? That's, that's not a way so, to keep an effective workforce going. Let me play devil's advocate here for a moment. Let's imagine that for some reason, a disenchanted um, people manager has found his or her way into this podcast and is listening to this and says, well, that sounds nice, but you know, like I'm dealing with folks who don't necessarily know themselves so well, where there isn't necessarily an awareness about what they really want next, or they're too burned out because we don't do contraction release, um, kind of like pause and stop um, properly. And, and people have a really, they're, they're somewhat um, burned out. So this idea of be natural, have a, you know, conversation about, oh, I'm not feeling like challenged uh, and I would rather like to do this. It, that just doesn't work at my place. I, I love that question. I think you're exactly right. So it is difficult to know oneself. Uh, and, and again, the brain is not really designed mm -hmm. so that our unconscious emotional experiences uh, are, are knowable with any clarity. So, um, uh, so how do we do that? So one of the companies I've started called Immersion Neuroscience uh, recently launched an employee performance application in which with wearable sensors, we're getting feedback and we're actually identifying at work what are the peak experiences you're having? Let's catalog those. And what are the times when you become neurologically frustrated? Let's catalog those. And then after a month, you can sit with your supervisor and have a real objective discussion that says, hey, here's the stuff that really turns me out at work. I love doing these things. And, um, you know, here's the stuff that I just, I need some more training or it's just not really my, my thing. I think that's, that gives us self-insight. So when we built that uh, technology, uh, it goes through your cell phone and the employee every day gets feedback on his or her, uh, you know, experiences that tell you if you, you know, what do you dig at work? What do you, what do you not do? Yeah, so, yeah. you know, I, I mean, you, you might be able to do it by having a coach give you feedback. There's a bunch of ways you can probably do that. But I think this is a pretty effective way of, um, you know, using technology to measure neurologically what your brain's responding to. So, you know, I mean, you're talking to a physicist, Paul, like by training, I'm a physicist and I love yeah. that, you know, you introduced yourself as a Martian. I would argue you're a curious Martian and on top of it, you're probably a curious and evidence-based Martian, but not everybody is. So how do you deal with folks when you introduce this work in larger organizations who are maybe not as open to a rational appeal. You know, that's been one of my humbling moments as a as I grew up more and more to realize, well, people don't necessarily are open to rational appeals and they have already their conclusions and preferences and they don't really challenge them. So the how how do you get through to them? You know, you have all that data you you can connect to like if this is the kind of behavior you're doing if you are showing up with vulnerability and your role model it, literally we have sensors picking up um, signals, whether they are neurotransmitters or, you know, like electrical impulses, like this really makes a difference. But someone might say, yeah, but whatever. Yeah, I mean, I think it all gets to ROI, to be honest with you. So I'm, uh -huh. I'm a super practical guy like you are. Um, you know, the clients that are using our technology have, very serious problems with things like absenteeism and turnover. Uh, they don't know when people are ready for promotions. So our, our, uh, the data we collect uh, capture all that. So for example, we uh, have developed a physiologic measure of psychological safety, you know, a, a factor that uh, Google made very popular in Project Oxygen. Mm -hmm. 
showing us one of the most effective measures of teamwork. Now, Google measured that on the survey. We measured that physiologically. I can tell you second by second how psychologically safe you feel. Uh-huh. Um, we recently developed a physiologic measure of grit. So grit's got a lot of play in the positive psychology literature. Uh, so grit is essentially the ability to, to overcome adversity and sort of be persistent. Um, so we have measures of grit so that can tell us, you know, this person can really tough it out there. So that to me is a, is a good indicator for promotion. Um, so again, I think it's got to come from the needs. So by the time they talk to me or to you, uh, you know, they, they have some kind of uh, pain point that they yeah. need to have resolved. And I, I, you know, I'm into measurement, so I, I don't trust intuition. Um, you know, it's, I would say like, you know, I think in, in my personal life, feelings and intentions are very nice things, but at work, all I care about is actions. So all these technologies are developed have been designed, the, the algorithms predict actions and, and not feelings or intentions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out that when people, as you know, when people are more productive, when they're working with high trust teams, they actually enjoy work a lot more. And, and the, there's neuroscience, uh, you know, data support that as well. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't want you to be happy at work. I want you to be challenged and yeah. focused and then feel satisfied at the end of the day or the end of the week that, holy crap, we did some pretty serious stuff with some team members that really were knocking it out of the park and raised my level of performance. That satisfaction is much more important than, than happiness. Um, mm-hmm. So, so, so what's that's a... a little bit odd, right? Yeah, I don't want... The, the new yeah. view is I want, I want happy employees. I don't. The, the science definitely shows that, and, and, and a lot of the work out of Harvard and other places have confirmed it behaviorally as well. Mm-hmm. I want you to be totally focused and challenge your work. I don't want you to think about shopping on Amazon or posting to Facebook at work. You should not have time or space in your brain to have those distractions. You should think about, holy crap, we got to finish this thing by Friday. i got to get focused. So this is the what some companies are calling the, the tight 40. I want you to be totally on for 40 hours while you're at work. Uh, and, and not be sort of pissing away time on stuff that's not creating value for the organization. So yeah. um, I love run, running that tight 40. And then, yeah, 5 o'clock, 5, 5.15, I want that parking lot to empty out. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you're working, as I have, I work places where it was expected you work 80 hours a week. Well, what do you do? Well, you take two-hour lunches, you're, you know, getting your dry cleaning. You know, that's not a really efficient from a neurologic perspective. I want you to be on, uh, really on for eight hours bang it out and then let it go. Go relax, uh-huh. go see your family, go work out, whatever you need to do. So, Paul, the, you know, you, you mentioned awareness earlier and, 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 and mindfulness. And so I was playing the devil's advocate. Luckily, really, usually people we work with by self-selection actually don't have to be convinced that this work does make sense. But what they do struggle with is to create um, an ongoing practice that helps them have more awareness of, you know, like how they're showing up or or how there are certain triggers that either cause them to behave in ways that deepen their relationships or that interfere with their relationships. Like what's a, on an individual level, you know, if I was, if you were my coach, I came to you and I said, I really, I'm not even sure where to start. What's a, what's a good entry practice, you know, like in mindfulness, you bring attention to what is happening in the present moment, and you may bring attention to what's happening in your body as a way to anchor yourself in the present moment. Like what's the equivalent of that as I am collaborating with others in a team context? Gosh, that's such a deep question. I don't think I have the perfect (laughs) answer for it. I'll give you a couple answers. I think there's some great ancient wisdom, uh, you know, that you know, and I know. Um, One is, you know, a, a saying I like a lot, which is, 
you have two ears and one mouth. So you should listen mm. twice as much as you speak. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is just slow down, right? So um, from a neurologic perspective, uh, the brain um, mm-hmm. integrates information more slowly than the sort of impulsive response. So if you take the time to listen, that information integrates much more effectively in your brain. Um, and sleep is a great way to consolidate information. So anything that's important, sleep on it, literally sleep on it. Um, so I think you're just just letting others uh, run the show occasionally, just, just yeah. taking that in, take, taking a neurologic breath or an actual breath. Uh, so in, in a lot of sports, as you know, um, you know, it's important to do uh, what the military calls tactical breathing. So you're, you know, you're, you're getting into a battle. Uh, the first thing you want to do is take a breath, slow down. So this saying in medicine as well, uh, when you, when you hear a code blue, you know, when someone's heart has stopped, mm-hmm. the first thing a doctor should do in that patient's room is to take his or her own pulse. In other words, take a beat, organize yourself before, you know, it's exciting. So I think something exciting is happening. Slow it down for just a beat and just uh, get get a, a chance for your brain to become refocused after you've rushed to get to this place that you're at. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. I think all those are, are based on a sort of intuitive understanding of how the brain works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm always stunned by the fact that, you know, because in a way it is a basic and yet it is so important. Slow down and sleep more. You know, it nearly sounds like well really but it it obviously is anything anything but and to understand and have the humility to accept that you know like at the end of the day i can't force myself through this i know there's a lot of excitement about if i just have the right diet and the right you know like lifestyle practices all i need is three hours and i can not have the tight 40 but the tight 140 Mm-hmm. But there are limits to this, and they come with consequences that are really um, neurobiolo- neurobiological. Absolutely. And also, I think psychological. You know, um, I, I just realized, I, so I've been traveling a lot. I was on four continents in eight days. And, and I realized I started using that as this badge of honor. Like, look how important I am, right? People have to fly me all around. I thought, man, what a... What a really weak sense of self I must have because I have to tell people that. So I'm mm-hmm. going to suppress that. So I think we used to do that a lot with the hours worked, right? Well, you know, I haven't slept in 19 days because I've been working 160 hours a week. Actually, that's not, that's not healthy. That's not smart. And also I think identifies a, an impersonality kind of disorder or, or problem in which you're not being able to prioritize effectively or you're micromanaging everything in your environment um, so mm-hmm. part of building high trust, high performance organizations is really being an effective delegator about um, creating space from a leadership perspective so that you can focus on what you should be doing and not managing other people. So as you said in the yeah. intro, once you have a tri- high trust organization, it doesn't mean you're not, you know, those people are not responsible and accountable for what they're doing. They absolutely are. But you're ceding control to those individuals for execution of projects so that they take ownership of it so that you get mistakes. Mm-hmm. Oh, hold on, mistakes, that's bad. No, but mistakes on the, on the positive deviation side are called innovations. So mm-hmm. as a leader, I wanna make sure that you are executing a little bit differently than, than I did or previous people did. And we try to find best practice out of that. So in the book, we go through in some detail how to, how to uh, both delegate, monitor, but also um, you know, use that opportunity, you, essentially crowdsourcing uh, how you find best practice, uh, as opposed to, I'm the boss. I have somehow in a godlike way figured out what best practice is. 
I just say mm. bullshit. There's just no way, right? So let the humans try this thing over and over and over, and you'll start to find best practice. You also find some mistakes, and it's your job as a leader to be a risk mitigator to go, hey, that didn't work. So one of my favorite things, sorry, I'm on a rant now, so you got me going. Uh, one of my favorite things that is done uh, typically in Silicon Valley at where I live is uh, a monthly congratulations, you screwed up celebration. So uh -huh. every month we're going to get pizza and beer after work, and we're going to talk about here's the biggest mistake I made this month or my team made this month. We'll talk about it because those mistakes means, number one, let's not do this again. Let's share this with the whole company. I, that was a bad idea. This didn't work. I burned five days of my life trying to do this thing, number one. But number two, let's talk about celebrating mistakes as opportunities to also find innovations, right? So mm -hmm. if you're going to punish people for making mistakes, then all you're going to do is establish that the only thing you should do is the status quo and never try anything new. And you're going to get average performance and average levels of engagement at work. Yeah. If I want to have innovation, I've got to accept mistakes and I've got to really celebrate those mistakes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm tooting into the same horn. I think there was a number of years ago, an article on why Pixar was Pixar um, before they were bought by Disney. And th that was one of their practices. And it really resonated a lot with me. I have to admit, uh, we're over time. And I haven't really been thinking about how to get off the stage here with you, because this is a conversation that could be rolling into a variety of ways. Um, and, and on for a while. The, we're coming a little bit full circle here because you mentioned servient leadership before. If you have trust in the organization, then the job of the leader really is just to serve others so they can do what they need to do because they're empowered individuals that are motivated and connected. And the the trick of getting there is really, it seems like, you know, to do the work. Sleep, slow down, bring attention to the present moment, show up, make mistakes, admit mistakes. There really is no magic shortcut to that. Yeah, and it sounds easy, but it's hard to do in practice. Uh -huh. And this is where I think forgiving others, forgiving yourself, being tolerant, even beyond that, being being accepting others for who they are and accepting yourself for who you are is really important. Um, I, I think particularly for people who are younger, they think they have to perform perfectly all the time. And it's it's an absolute burden. Nobody's perfect. The world isn't perfect. So let's let's embrace the weirdness mm -hmm. of people. Let's embrace our own variation. And in doing that, just try to get a little better over time. Yeah. Uh, it's not a straight line. It's just a, it's an up and down curve. But if the trend is upward, hey, it's all good. Uh-huh. Yeah, in a way, it brings trust to a whole other level, not only relational trust or organizational trust, but it's also, in a way, really trust in life that I can screw up. There can be mistakes. There will be learning. And things will be unfolding. And that is just the journey we're on. Absolutely. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure. I know that we barely scratched the surface. Uh, for those of our listeners uh, who really want to look into this, there are actually eight factors, unless you've uh, changed the model since I've looked at it. Um, but there's so much more to say about each of these and what practices are that um, individuals, teams, or organizations can engage in to really cultivate those uh, because they they're just they will make a difference and it is important work so uh highly encouraged for everyone go go for it check it out and also again sleep enough i love it uh same to you paul and Thank you thanks so much, you George. yeah for being on this podcast it was a pleasure paul Thank and you thanks so much, you George. yeah for being on this podcast